0: Feel good? Feel ready to go for the day? Hey, uh, so um, some of you may not know me really well, uh, so let me just explain a little bit about myself. I am a person who loves to talk about things that other people don't want to talk about. Um, and uh, I believe uh, very strongly that one of the most uh, unhealthy rules we have in American culture is uh, friends don't talk about politics or faith because I believe that that actually turns us into very shallow friendships. And I think it actually adds to the divide going on in the world today. That said, last week I took the opportunity, as I occasionally do, to probably provoke everybody of every different political persuasion by something I said in the message. And I I probably should have waited to do it this week, because this week we're talking about anger. Um, But I'm not. I'm not going to talk politics again today. But we are going to talk about that because we live in a culture of outrage, don't we? You don't have to go very far to see it. You can see it on social media all over the place. You see it in the world all around us. People are angry. People are outraged. The, the, before they even have all the evidence. They, the, the, we want justice, but honestly, outrage is not the answer. It doesn't bring justice. We see outrage leading us to spending a lot of our emotional, and intellectual effort on finding ammunition to fight and prove our point, leading to greater and greater segregation between uh, political parties, between races, between socioeconomic classes, and greater division among our families and friends as well. So what are we to do? It's easy to say our culture is the problem, but... That's kind of a blind excuse because in reality we are our culture. Uh, The great theologian and philosopher uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, once responded to a newspaper's request for letters to the editor on the topic of what was so wrong with the world. And he just simply sent a letter in saying, I am yours truly, G.K. Tolstoy commented in a similar way, saying, Everyone thinks of changing humanity. No one thinks of changing himself. One of the greatest, hardest things about the Bible and being a Christian is that the Bible constantly reminds us that if we want to change our world, it starts by looking in a mirror and realizing that what's wrong out there originates in our own hearts and our own minds and our own beliefs. And so change starts and actually moves forward one heart, one person at a time. So as we continue our series today, Where's the Love? We're going to look at very practically what the Bible says about anger and this culture of outrage. As I was studying uh, about this this last week, I read a lot of different things, but I just want to give credit to two people who uh, gave strong influence to this message, Tim Keller and Dan Patrick. I don't like to, I don't like to take other people's ideas without giving credit, so that there we go. Some of, some of you may be thinking, though, about this. I know anger is an issue in our culture, but I'm not an angry person. I I know there are red-faced, hot, angry, extreme eruptive personalities, but then there're also the more relaxed, easygoing people like me. But what I what I hope you'll see throughout this whole message is that, that, that an awareness will come that every single one of us is angry, including God. I think the biblical view of anger challenges the way we think about and express Anger in our relationships in a really powerful and fairly unique way that helps us be wise. In fact, somebody came up to me between services and said, Ross, if you would preached this long enough ago that Darth Vader would have heard this, we would have been at least three, maybe four movies less on the series. Today we're going to examine four things about anger. Its dangerous power, its basic goodness, why anger goes wrong, and how anger can actually bring Healing. So first, anger is dangerous power. If you've experienced anger, you needed to not think about this very long. You know the destructive power. Anger is verbal dynamite that can pulverize the soul or relationships. And there are at least three reasons why anger is so destructive, or or the effects of anger is destruction in our life. That we see anger attacks our bodies. Research repeatedly shows that anger is one of the most destructive emotions to physical health. Recent studies say that regular feelings of anger increase the likelihood of heart disease and that within two hours of an anger outburst, the chances for you to experience a heart attack or stroke skyrocket. Anger creates ulcers. It drains energy. It's linked to so many physical illnesses. Anger also destroys relationships. Proverbs 15 talks about it this way. It says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 29 adds to that, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. I mean, anger causes an enormous amount of lasting damage in you and I and people around us. How many of you find your emotions many years later still being challenged with, from the angry words that someone spoke to you, whether it was a parent or coach or a boss or a spouse? Anger also blinds us to wisdom. Proverbs 14 says this, "...whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly." And man, that hits close to home for me and for all of us, doesn't it? I mean, how many times after you've cooled off from blowing up and being angry, have you felt embarrassed? Felt like a fool? Felt ignorant and foolish? You were blinded by your rage and you said things you regret. You jump to conclusions that weren't even right in the end, and therefore you had accusations that were foolish and weren't right. And when we're angry, we see things through a distorted lens. And we do. We make stupid choices in that moment. How many times has outrage gained a hand in your life or in our culture, and it's made us blind enough that what what anger said would happen never really even materialized? It didn't happen. I mean, we thought a certain decision by a leader was going to lead to drastic consequences for that organization and that group, but it didn't. We thought the world would end, but it didn't. We thought my kid is never going to recover from the humiliation and the scarred treatment this horrible person did to them, but they end up being strong and healthy. Our planet is still here and doing well, all things considered. Our businesses and churches that were predicted to go down the twos because of a leader's decision are still here and doing well outrage, anger, blinds us. It blows things out of proportion. And anger goes further than that. Anger weakens our will and actually leaves us more prone to be driven by anger. Proverbs 19 says this, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty if you, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. See, when we live in anger and don't deal with it well, we become more prone to anger. Anger itself has very powerful addictive characteristics. One of the reasons why it's addictive is because anger helps us to continue to live in denial. We often don't admit we're angry. Instead, we say things like, I'm passionate or I'm Italian or I'm Latin or I'm just direct and blunt, or I, I just care too much, or or we say I'm I'm just an activist fighting for a just cause, or I'm called to rock the boat. That's my role. That's who I'm called to be in life. I, I, or I just tell it like it is. I'm I'm an A-type personality, and sometimes Christians even spiritualize that and say, well, I'm just prophetic, or I'm just a truth teller. But underneath most of those statements, for most of us, is anger. And, and the more we deny it and the more we don't recognize it and refuse to admit it, the more that anger actually begins to gain power in our lives and the more the social and psychological problems of anger show up in strained relationships and blindness to reality. And generally we see two kinds of people in regard to anger. We see the people who stuff anger and hold it in and For some reason, many Christians have believed this is what the Bible calls us to do and and I'll show you in a minute that that's actually not at all what the Bible teaches us to do. Or we have those who blow up and they let it all out, they vent it on everybody, and I was reading, I was reading several articles this past week about anger, and, and they were, several of them were citing historical trends in, in the American culture in regard to anger, and all of them were talking about how several decades ago the valued ethic in regard to anger was to be stoic and to keep it in and letting it out was culturally and morally wrong and a, and a sign of weakness. But then came the self-help psychology movement and saw some problems with that and So they began reacting to that, particularly around the 80s, and and they started to encourage letting it all out. The cathartic rage, yell and scream and hit something and let it all out, was thought to be healthier than stuffing it in. There was a letter written uh, to the editor by a man raised in a home who practiced that cathartic rage that I think sums up a lot of the research really well. He He says, my young brother was allowed to kick the furniture when he got mad, trying to get it all out. And now he's 32 and he's still kicking the furniture, what's left of it. And he's kicking his wife and he's kicking the kids and anything else that he can get out that that gets in his way. And last week, he kicked a TV out the second story window while the window was closed. See, research is now showing that that kind of ventic, venting of anger, the cathartic rage, is actually really unhealthy. It's destructive to lead, and it leads to increased anger and less ability to cope appropriately with anger in our lives. Proverbs tells us the angry person, if you rescue them from the consequences, they're, they're just going to do it again and again and again and again. See, Ephesians 4, Paul says this Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There's some urgency there for us to deal with it and pay attention to it and, and give no opportunity to the devil. So, is anger sin? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. It depends. Because second, the Bible also teaches us there is goodness in anger. Anger's basic goodness. Paul teaches us, be angry and do not sin. So anger comes first and sin comes second, meaning anger isn't necessarily sin. And we've already seen in the wisdom of Proverbs that slow to anger is trumpeted as a good thing. And in Exodus 34, God reveals His glory to Moses and here's what He says. He says, "...the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, God's glory can be found in His anger, along with His mercy and His graciousness and His steadfast love and faithfulness. And God's glorious anger is being slow to anger. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval uh, theologian around the 1,000, attributes a quote in one of his writings to a, a leading Christian thinker from the 4th century, John Chrysostom, and he says this. He says, He who is not angry, whereas he has cause to be, sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked but the good to do wrong." So catch what he's saying there. He's saying he who is angry without cause sins and he who is not angry when there is cause sins. What he's arguing for is anger is a reality, an emotion God gives, an emotion God Himself feels. So being a stuffer who never is angry, denies it and represses it, is actually sinning. Just as a person who blows up all over people doing a lot of harm is also sinning. See, the secret with anger is being slow to anger. So that anger is dealt with wisely for the right reasons, in the right way, in the right time. Just like God is slow to anger, which is distinct from stuffing it, which is usually avoidance for us. Rebecca Pippert, another great Christian author from the last 40 years or so, has said this, Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Which means if we're stuffers, most of the time the only way we avoid with the pain of stuffing is to almost look indifferent. It's a sin. So how can we define anger? Anger is simply love in motion. Anger is that power that pulverizes that which threatens whatever you love. E.H. Gifford, a great 19th century theologian, illustrates that simply when he says, human love here offers a really true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. So how do you feel... In your own life, when someone you love is ravaged by foolishness, by sin, by unwise decisions, and you see it causing so much destruction in their lives, do we respond to those moments with complete indifference? Stuff it as though they're a stranger? No, of course not. You respond with anger because of how much you love. Your anger wants to destroy the thing that is trying to destroy the one you love. Anger is defending what you love. Anger is love in motion. So here are what I think two of the most powerful questions we can ask ourselves when we're feeling angry in any form or fashion. It's just, what am I defending? And what does this anger indicate that I am loving in life? See, if you ask and truly answer those two questions, it's not going to solve everything, but it's going to begin to really lead you to a place where you have the ability to make something different out of anger. You can discover what it is that you truly love that is motivating your anger. And see, that's the reason the Bible talks so much about God being angry. God loves so much, He hates what is destroying you and I. We don't like to see Jesus as angry. We like to see Jesus as loving. It's hard to imagine this Anglo-European hair model Jesus to, to be angry, right? But an honest reading of the eyewitness accounts show Jesus angry on a regular basis. He turns over the tables of the money changers in the temple. He regularly confronts the Pharisees and Sadducees, calling them whitewashed tombs, the blind leading the blind, hypocrites and other things like that. And if you actually look at the New Testament words, the Greek words used to describe this anger, they are really strong, red-faced, eyes-bulging, bellowing anger type of words. So why does Jesus get angry? Because He loves so deeply and perfectly Jesus gets angry, but He doesn't sin. Third, why anger goes wrong. See, the problem with love is that we don't always love the right thing. St. Augustine once said, the biggest problem we face in our life is disordered loves. There are many things in this world that are good. Uh, your family, your job, the political or social justice causes you are for, the accomplishments, the being knowledgeable and wise and prudent with your money and secure, so that you can be secure and you can be generous and provide for your family well. All those things are good, but those things we love become disordered when good things become ultimate things. Because when good things become ultimate things, they become more important to us than God, and we trust them more than God, and it results in disordered dysfunction in our lives and in our relationships. And when love becomes disordered, our emotions and our anger and therefore our actions become disordered and dysfunctional. So for example... If, you, if your love is ordered in life and you are single and dating someone you really like and then you break up, you're sad, right? But if you break up and you feel like killing yourself, your love is disordered. You've turned that person or what that person represents in your life into, your, into something beyond good, into something ultimate, and you absolutely have to have it. You can't be happy without it. You can't be fulfilled without it. When you look at something or someone more important as more important than God, your emotions become disproportionate to the circumstances, maybe even become uncontrollable. And anger becomes disordered in its focus. So when we talk about anger, we often like to talk about the really big issues because it makes us feel good. We talk about solving justice and all these big things. But but the reality is, what makes you and I angry most often? For me, it's drivers who stop at empty traffic circles and make me slam on the brakes and wait. With a traffic circle, I can't even sit in my car and yell, What shade of green are you waiting for? Because there isn't a traffic light. For me, it's getting in a slow checkout lane or kids leaving their dirty dishes on the table or even worse, putting them on the counter uh, two inches above an empty dishwasher. Why is it? Why is it that I get so much more angry about things like that than I do about the thousands being slaughtered and abused in Syria? Why is it that I get ticked off when someone says something mean about something I did or accuses me falsely than about the women being trafficked in Columbus. It's because my love is disordered and focused on the wrong thing. It's focused on me and my needs not on how much God loves me and how much God loves other people and being secure in that love. See, if you and I are looking for significance or security or people's approval or a good reputation or status or pleasure, then, then when anything gets in the way of that, you'll become angry and driven by anger. You have to have it. Your anger will be out of line with the severity of the issue. You won't be able to just shrug it off. Instead, you will eventually blow up. You will hurt your family over dirty dishes left on the con- counter in the wrong place. See, so fourth, how can anger heal? How can anger heal? Since most of our anger is hidden or denied and, uh, and re- or recharacterized as this is just my personality, this is my identity, this is my calling, healing and good only comes out of anger when we admit we're angry. See, the key to being angry, according to Proverbs and the Apostle Paul, is being slow to anger. Using our anger thoughtfully and well. In order to do that, we have to be aware that we're actually angry and be intentional about admitting we are angry rather than walking along and all of a sudden, pow, where did that come from? I can't believe I blew up in that instance. See, additionally, too often, we're actually expressing anger and denying that we're actually doing it. For example, someone offends you and you, you, your response is, I'm not gonna get angry, I'm gonna take the high road, I'm not angry, I'm above that, I'm better than that. The reality is you're still angry. It's just coming out sideways. You are punishing them by making them feel inferior and making yourself feel better by thinking you're superior, but it's still anger coming out. You are still punishing them and trying to make them feel bad. See, it's hard for us to admit admit we're angry because when we do, we often have to admit our weakness and even sometimes we have to admit our sin. And admitting we are angry is an act of vulnerability and we don't like being vulnerable. But if you don't admit you're angry, if you just vent it, if you criticize people over it, you're going to get bitter and cynical about situations. You'll begin to cast your identity as the devil's advocate or the BS meter person or the truth teller or, or just stuff it and pretend it isn't there. And your anger will continue to destroy you and damage you and your relationships because the roots of anger will grow. They will become shoots. They will become a thick forest and you'll no longer be able to see the forest for the trees. And you will live controlled increasingly by your anger and cynicism in life. See, so many people who take on the identity of devil's advocate, I don't know why a Christian would ever think take pride in taking on that identity, or a cynic, or I'm just the BS meter person in the group, or I'm a truth teller. They're just people who have denied their anger, not dealt with their anger, and it has taken deep root and made them into highly cynical, negative people. The second thing to find freedom and healing is to analyze your anger. Proverbs 29 says, Do not say... I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done to me. So do not say to who. Who is he, who is, who is this being said to? What, what, what's happening here is you're getting a glimpse into the self-talk. It's what you're saying to yourself in this instance. What makes you angry in life is not always what has happened to you, but what you tell yourself about what has happened to you. Your anger comes from what you're telling yourself about yourself, what that message means about your own security, your worth, your intelligence, your, your pleasure in life. What, what, whatever it is that makes you angry at being fired or cut from the team or not having the nice things that your neighbors have tells us what's in our hearts that is feeling threatened and what we feel a need to defend so when the cashier at the store is not is not doing things well or as fast as we would like and we get angry what am i what am i defending what does this anger indicate i'm loving well maybe it's maybe it means i'm loving uh, my uh, my own, having things my way Maybe it means I'm I'm defending the fact that I'm going to be late and I don't like it when people uh, think I'm disorganized and late and irresponsible and I need their approval so I'm getting angry. But, the, but then again, what we're doing is we're defending our ego and our needs and our self-interest instead of being secure in who we are and who God says we are and loving others out of that. The third thing in anger that turns anger into something that heals is acting rightly in our anger. Proverbs 25 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings north, forth rain, and back a backbiting tongue angry looks. Now let's start by looking at the end of this. What is the backbiting tongue? It is a tongue controlled by disordered love and disordered anger, intent on putting another person in their place, punishing another person because they've done it to me or because somebody else has done it to me. What what do the last two lines of that proverb teach us? It teaches us that anger begets anger. Offense begets offense. You sow disordered anger and you will reap anger. It becomes this spiral of more and more and more and more anger and there is no resolution. See, what is fascinating about this proverb is that in all of ancient wisdom literature, they all have their wisdom literature on self-restraint and their sayings about self-control and lessons on revenge in regard to anger. But none of them go as far as this proverb. To say that if your enemy is hungry, feed them. These are the things your enemies cannot do without. Food and drink. This is not just saying, just, it's not just saying, don't take revenge on your enemies, those who hurt you and attack you. It's actually saying to us, save them. Save them. To illustrate this, allow me to go back to something I think almost all of us probably did or saw as kids happen, or if you're parents, it's more than likely happened to you. It's been said that getting married until you have kids, it's a bit like having a long date. But the moment you have kids, it all changes. Most of what you do or uh, you've done before, most of the way you spent your time before just goes outside the, do- outside the window. You just can't do it anymore. And even a lot of times you have to change your work. Everything changes. It doesn't even, doesn't even matter if you're a good parent or a bad parent. Your life now becomes about sacrifice. Instead of doing what you want, you're feeding, you're dressing, you're changing diapers, you're, you're doing it at all hours of the night, and even as your kids grow up in teen years, you're driving them everywhere, your time is not your own. At some point in that parenting journey, you're going to ask that child to not do something that they, that you know is self-destructive and stupid. And they are definitely going to want to do that thing that you've told them not to do. And your child is going to turn to you and say, You don't love me. You hate me. I hate you. You've ruined my life. They might even go as far as saying, You've never done anything for me. As a parent, that can be one of the most painful things you ever hear. You've sacrificed so much for so long, and even if you haven't done it all well, you still have given so much. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond? I think we have three options to respond. You can withdraw, and some parents do, especially among when old, this happens with older children. we The parents are more prone to, to, to withdraw. It's just too painful. We, so we avoid the anger. We avoid the issue. We, we put some distance between us and our child. But, but that... That doesn't do any good. Because if you stay away from them, you leave them to their own idiocy and their foolishness continues to ravage their life and do harm. The other thing you can do is you can vent. and You can can defend yourself and you can get angry and we can go into the conversation with both guns blazing. We can tell them how, how much we've done and how smart and wise we are, how much more experience we have. And since you have 25 or 30 more years of experience using verbal abuse to get your way, you'll probably win the argument right but of course you may win the argument but you will lose in the relationship creating more pain and alienating them there's a third way you can use your anger to strategically intervene to save them that's what this slow to anger thing is leading us to because the only way to be slow to anger is to admit it to take the time to analyze it to understand what's going on and then we can figure out how to act in our anger in a way that heals. And act we must. Proverbs 27 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If we just stuff it, most of the time when we stuff it, we're just trying to avoid it. We're not acting at all. Rightly ordered love, rightly ordered anger is a powerful force for healing and good. When we explode and, we, and, 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 and sin in that way, we do it because we haven't analyzed it. We haven't rightly figured out what right love needs to be like in this moment. If we find that our anger as we explore and analyze it is about our own selfishness or immaturity, then we need, to, we need to work on a part of our character and use the anger as a signal to us that we need to repent. We need to receive more of God's love and we need to see this whole thing from a little different perspective because it's skewed right now for us. We're seeing it through blinders and we need to allow Him to rightly order and strengthen our love. If we find that the anger is motivated by right love, then we've grown in wisdom. And the wisdom needed to go to the person and deal with it and give an opportunity for reconciliation and forgiveness. See, if you love your children, your anger will not be directed at them personally, but at the foolishness that they are succumbing to. So you will still want to be close to your child. You will still allow your anger with God's help to bring you close to them while at the same time firmly holding the line on the discipline and the rules that prevent the foolishness from taking place. Say, instead of responding to the backbiting disordered anger of your child with more anger, as a parent, you absorb that anger and you don't respond in kind with angry payback. Instead, you absorb it and you create the chance to save them and heal your relationship. Now, you can be mad, but you focus your love in motion. That anger of the frustrating, crazy thinking of the child and, and, and focus on that and not on the child themselves. But the power to do that honestly isn't in you and I. I mean, we've tried to control, we've, and we've still blow. We've tried to say, I'm not going to pop, and we still pop. We've tried to say, I'm going to stuff it, I'm just going to be okay, but we still get angry. The only way to do slow, wise angry is uh, is for Jesus to become more than just an example to us. He's the God who comes to us, and we experience Him coming to us, loving us so much that His presence becomes a source of strength to us. See, Jesus came close enough for us to grab Him, And you know what? When he came that close, we did grab him. We mocked him. We said, you say you're the king, but you can't tell me what to do with my sex life or my finances or my words or my life. So we beat him and we mocked him. We tortured him. We reviled him. And he didn't revile us back. He absorbed our disordered anger And when we were angry with God, God didn't withdraw. He came close to us. And He still does. And when we reviled Him and put Him on a cross coming at Him with all of our anger guns blazing, He told us the truth that we sin and He absorbed our rage without paying us back. He didn't just take our undeserved anger towards Him. He took upon Himself the anger that we deserved. As Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, knowing the end was drawing near, you may remember he prayed, Father, if, if possible, can you take this cup from me? What's that cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup refers to God's justified anger at how we revile him and accuse God of not being good when he is so good. Rather than owning our own junk, we give our disordered love and anger, our disordered anger to God. See, in Jesus, you see the ultimate strategic intervention, taking our disordered anger upon Himself, paying the ultimate price. He loved the sinner and hated the sin. And I've got to tell you, generally speaking, I hate that phrase. I hate it when people say, love the sinner and hate the sin. Because most of the time, it's a self-righteous uh, righteous excuse for being angry in a non-healing manner and simply is an excuse for us to be able to vent our anger and get it off our chests. But in this instance of Jesus, He perfectly shows us what that phrase, hate the sin and love the sinner, looks like. See, Jesus' response to our disordered rage was on the cross to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He called out our sin and He pleaded for our forgiveness. See, if you see that kind of love pressing into you, that kind of God anger, that kind of love in motion that we see in Jesus, and you receive that, it becomes part of your DNA. It it becomes part of how you're wired in your heart. It frees us from the messages that threaten our security, our worth, or our pleasure, whatever it is that's motivating us to our anger. It frees us from needing to defend our egos. Because we know we're really forgiven. We know that we are fully and securely loved by God, and therefore we are free to respond with a compassionate anger, an anger that heals relationships. Now we may think that's impractical at some level. I get that. It isn't. We've seen the power of that in our own history, in our own time. Lately, as I've wrestled with this huge problem of the polarization that's going on by the politics of victimization that are behind so much of the outrage in our nation, I've been drawn to listening to and reading more of Martin Luther King's Jr.'s speeches. Allow me to read. I never almost read this long quote. This is a really long quote. Allow me to read a long quote of Martin Luther King recorded in The Strength to Love. In this quote, MLK is actually responding to the question, don't we accomplish more through violence and political force than through love? And his words practically address for us whatever injustice or anger we're facing, whether it's race relations, whether it's socioeconomic class warfare, whether it's the conflict with our family or our workplace or just life itself. MLK wrote this. He said that we are commanded to love, is expressed explicitly in Jesus' words. Love your enemies, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. We are called to this difficult task in order to realize a unique relationship with God. We are potential sons of God. Through love, that potentiality becomes actuality. We must love our enemies because only by loving them can we know God and experience the beauty of His holiness. He goes on and says, The relevance of what I've said to the crisis in race relations should be readily apparent. There will be no permanent solution to the race problem until oppressed men develop the capacity to love their enemies. The darkness of racial injustice will be dispelled only by the light of forgiving love. For more than three centuries, he goes on and says, American Negroes have been battered by the iron rod of oppression, forced to live with these shameful conditions. We are tempted to become bitter, justified, in our words, to become bitter, and to retaliate with corresponding hate. But if this happens, he says, the new order we seek will be little more than a duplicate of the old order. We must, in strength and humility, meet hate with love. He goes on and admits, don't I sound like most preachers, idealistic and impractical? He gets onto our thoughts. He says, maybe in some distant utopia you say that ideal will work, but not in our hard, cold world in which we live. And then he says, my friends, we have followed that so-called practical way for too long a time now. And it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. And can't we see that in our world today? In the polarization and the hate? Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation. But we will not, in the process, relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community to our most bitter opponents. We say we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering, absorbing the disordered, unjust anger of others. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. She goes on and says, throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience That we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Powerful, isn't it? Relevant. Could have written that today. In our world today. See, we all deal with anger. We all do. Where have you been angry? Trying to clench it and control it trying your whole life to not blow up or trying your whole life to stuff it down, but you know it's just not working. Healthy anger is not either stuffing or venting. God is inviting us to a different way to deal with anger, to release it to Him and learn to let rightly ordered love control anger's expression in healing ways there's one thing I could encourage you to do that I'm going to be doing for myself, it's when, when we look at any area where we feel irritated or angry, I want you to invite God into these questions that we talked about. What am I defending in this anger? And what does this anger indicate that I'm loving? And allow God to help reorder that love and to teach you in a way that it becomes this powerful, loving, angry force for healing in Your life, in Your relationships in our world. Would You stand with me as we pray? Father, as we turn our attention now to receive communion, we we acknowledge that You do love us so much. And Lord, we need this reminder on a regular basis of how much you loved us, how you came close to us even when we were angry, even when we, dis- we, we, we just give our disordered anger to you and accuse you of things rather than owning our own junk. You still come close. You love us that much. So that I pray even right now as we, as we remember you, as we celebrate communion, as we meet with you in this moment of worship and communion. Lord, that you'd help us, especially those of us who tend to stuff and deny anger, who don't recognize it. Would you help us see the anger? Help us understand it. Help us receive your love more fully. And then, Lord, help us walk out that anger in such healing, winsome, powerful ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.